Today, we're gonna start on a journey through the book of Mark. I had such great intentions. I had really planned this out awesome. Like I whiteboarded it out. We're gonna hit the crucifixion at Easter. It's gonna dominate. It's gonna be awesome, right? Yeah, we made it. we're gonna make it through verse three this morning. So I just want you to know that that, uh, that sounded a lot better on paper than in reality, <laughs> being honest. Like it, but man, I get to verse one. I'm like, well, good. Wow, that, that's awesome. Like how do we, you know, how are we ever gonna do that? So here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna study the book of Mark, the word of God, and we'll see, we'll get there when we get there because uh, God's word is powerful and it's active. And, and one of the things that I was, um, I love the book of Mark. First of all, it's so fast paced. Like if you've, got a, if you've got a little bit of the ADD, this is your book because he hits the ground running. No hesitation. There's, there's no prologue, no postlogue. There's good things in Matthew, and this is great, right? But Mark is not that. This is what happened, this is when it happened, and this is how it happened. And I love that about this book. What I love the most about it for me, personally for me, is it's written by a guy named John Mark who blew it big time. So, so bad that he, you know, he actually abandoned Paul and Barnabas on a missionary trip sold them up the river and just blew it. And like, so bad that actually Paul and Barnabas blew up at each other and, uh, and John Mark disappears kind of off the scene from a little bit with him. And he, he uh, washes up on the shores of, of Peter. And if you remember Peter, uh, he was a professional screw up. Like he really uh, made up new ways to screw it up. And so here's a guy, John Mark, who blew it. And by the way, Paul says, you're out of here. I'm done with you. 2 Timothy 4 is that 40 years later in Paul's ministry and he is uh, in prison, he's about to be executed and he says, hey, son for John Mark, he's been good for my ministry. God is in the restoration business. So here's the words of John Mark, someone who's been restored, who is recounting, theologians believe, Peter's firsthand account. Peter's account. Peter, Jesus said, Satan desires to sift your soul as wheat, but I have prayed for you that when you are restored, that you will strengthen the church. Recounting the words of somebody who has been restored about the kingdom of God being restored. That's this book in a nutshell. But it's important for another reason. This is the first gospel ever written. And by the way, I'm going to, um, I'm starting with the, not everybody would agree with me on this, but I'm, I'm starting with the premise that the gospels are reliable. And and just so you, I'm going to leave this up for a few minutes so you can take a picture, write them down. These are four of the books that I have leaned heavily upon uh, as I've prepared for this over the last month. Um, but the one, if, you, if you're wondering about the reliability of the Gospels, the book by Peter J. Williams um, about the reliability of the Gospels is just one of many great resources out there. But that said, what we do, what we do know is this Gospel was written first. We know that it was before anybody else was, had written it. This was a, you know, a couple decades later, but the disciples were dying off. The apostles were dying. You know, Paul at one point writes in, to the church at Corinth, he was resurrected from the dead. And I can prove this because there's 500 people that saw him. But at this point in the early church, people were already starting to make up new things about Jesus. So the apostles began to write down these accounts of what happened so that if you, you know, you're walking around and some guy says, oh yeah, and then Jesus would just fly over the water. It was awesome. This is actually what happened and what didn't happen. That, that's what these gospels are for. To say that Jesus didn't walk on his bathwater when he's little. He didn't fly. Over, but this is, what, this is what we know. This is what we, that we take it as trustworthy. And so that's, um, 
for me, in our current climate and our current culture, there's a lot of opinions about who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't. And any opinion about Jesus, uh, the, the, if, like for instance, if you ever said the word, well, the Jesus I serve would never do this or I wouldn't do that, you are in danger of making a Jesus in your image. And a Jesus that you make up can't change you, can't transform you, can't challenge you because he is you. So this Jesus of the gospels, now we can look at it and say, okay, he did this and we, I might have a different view on why, would, but anything else that I say about what Jesus may or may not have done that doesn't come from one of these four gospels, I have to admit, intellectually honest, to say that I made that up. Um, that's just what it is. So this is, these are the only four accounts of what we know what Jesus said and did. And the gospel of Mark was the first one written. It was the earliest one. And that's what we're gonna start on today. So have you found the book of Mark? Because if not, that's your fault. <laughs> but would you find Keith for me? Because I'm gonna have to switch this out. I'm pretty sure. I think the sound guy just like ran out the door crying. <laughs> Sorry, Keith. Mark chapter one. I actually have read to verse eight in the first two services. I'm just gonna, we're not doing that because I know I'm not gonna make it that far. I just want to do verses one through three. The beginning of the good news. And by the way, think in mind of Peter sitting down telling John Mark, like, this is it, man. This is what happened. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us wisdom and insight into your word today that it will be the light and the lamp for us. I am thankful that you, inspired by your spirit, collected these things, these words of Jesus, these activities that we actually could know you. We know what you did and said. And I want to meet that Jesus, not the tame one, not the emasculated one, not the wild, crazy, but the, the, the Jesus of the gospels. You don't fit in any box that we could ever make. And I pray today that those boxes in our hearts are shattered. In, in Jesus' name, in your name, Jesus, we can pray. Amen. Do you guys know who Russell Brand is, if I say that name? All right, I'm just curious, like who? Just raise your hand. I just want to, yeah, okay, about half of you. The other half of you just don't want to admit you watched something so profane. It's, uh, <laughs> I swear to you, I tried to find one minute of uh, material that I could present to you on a Sunday morning, but I couldn't even get a minute of like, it was something that was uh, presentable with children in the room. But uh, Russell Brand is uh, a comedian. He's an actor. He is hilarious and he's brilliant. Like his mind is like fascinating. I would love to spend a day in his mind. It almost feels like one of those like bingo machines where they're popping the balls and it's like whatever pops up. And you know, um, Which by the way is a glimpse inside my brain sometimes, but... Um, but Russell Brand wrote a book uh, last year, Revolution, and it was about his recovery from addiction. And 
he said some things in there that actually made some headlines. Uh, I, I just took this one specifically from Relevant Magazine. Doesn't he look like who we think Jesus looks like, by the way? That guy could be, that, he could get work on Easter, right, in a mega church. Uh, Russell uh, Brand wrote this book on his, his version of kind of 12 steps. And I'm gonna save you the trouble. Don't, it's just really profane. Like I've read enough of it to think, well, I didn't get like one or two verses in or chapters in, whatever. And it's like, that's, it's, it's just profane. But he's doing his best attempt to explain what happened in his life and his transition. But the headlines that he was making, specifically for like Relevant Magazine and some Christian publications, was the statement, and they covered this in Guardian and UK. I mean, all kinds of publications covered this, that he says, the teachings of Jesus are now more relevant than they've ever been. And people were like, wow, that's awesome that he would say that. That's the, the, the teachings of Jesus and in this article specifically, I don't have all of it on this slide, but in this place here, they start talking about his journey of addiction and pain. And, and he says, uh, he's talking about this famous quote that every man who knocks on a brothel door is looking for God. Crack houses, these dens of suffering and illicit activity, they're all people trying to feel good, trying to feel connected. People are trying to escape. People are trying to get out of their own heads to me, this is a spiritual impetus. This is actually good stuff. Like, I'm like, this is really cool. And this is the author of the article says, this is at the core of why he believes the message of Jesus Christ is important right now. Humanity is metaphorically knocking on a brothel door and that they are looking for fulfillment in things that will only leave them empty. And because instant but quickly fleeting gratification is always on the fingertips, Amazon Prime, right? That click now, buy now button, that has been the death of me. Um, <laughs> Instagram, pornography, text messages, other modern trapped beings, we, we become addicted. That is all something I would say, I totally agree with what he's saying. And he goes on to say, one of, um, one of the ways, that we, his step, so to speak, is achieving Christ consciousness. A concept, this is what the author of the article, he's trying to extrapolate, this is what he's saying, uh, that Paul refers to as many Christians would call achieving the mind of Christ, essentially becoming more Christ-like ourselves. But that is not what Russell Brand is saying, by the way. If Christ, this is the quote from Brand. If Christ consciousness is not acceptable to us, accessible to us, then what is the point of the story of Jesus, you know? He asks rhetorically, he's just sort of a scriptural rock star, just an icon. Unless Jesus right here, right now, in your heart, in your consciousness, then what is Christ? Now, when you read the book, and by the way, no judgment towards Russell Brand. There are only two categories of people in this world. Sinners who are being saved. Me and you who are being saved. That's it. But what Russell Brand is saying in his book when you read it is that Christ consciousness is a very Eastern idea. He would list Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity side by side as really great ways of teachings that we could learn how to overcome our addictions. So what Russell Brand is saying in his book and in his writings is that Jesus is a really great teacher. Which, by the way, he is. In just a couple of chapters in Mark, it's going to say, he taught with great authority, blew their minds. But if you stop with great teacher, you have missed the Jesus of the Gospels. Because that's not what it says here. And, and by the way, I'll, I'm going to flip the script. We can be mad at Russell Brand all we want to, but now I'm going to make you mad at me. Um, 
Because that happens in our culture. I make this religion if I can get this. Because by the way, when you start looking at Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, those things, like when I'm looking at those things, it's really just a religion. If I do this, then I'm gonna finally attain transcendence and I'm gonna achieve it. It just works. It's just religion without Jesus in it. We have religion with our Jesus in it about how many times I can get to church, about, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like we have our versions of religion in the South. Some of us put our Jesus, our definition of Jesus is the political one. And by the way, conservatives used to have a corner on that market, but you progressives have been, you've been rising up on that a little bit. We're both got a version of Jesus that we want to come in and take over our politics and to win our side with it. And the Jesus that I see in this doesn't fit in any one of these. If your Jesus could fit in a Republican party or a Democratic party, he's not this Jesus. Oh, I thought you were gonna be mad. I've been mustering the curves all morning for that. No. This is a different Jesus. This is why I think the most important question that Jesus ever asked his disciples was, who do you say that I am? You see, he asked them, disciples, who do you say? And what did they say? Well, some say you're the prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. By the way, when they said that, you know what they were quoting was what the culture was saying. Because in Matthew chapter, I think it's 11. Somebody could look it up and correct me if I'm wrong. When John the Baptist, referring to him being uh, executed, Herod said, hey, I've heard that he is one of the prophets. I've heard he's John the Baptist resurrected. All the disciples were saying is that's actually what the culture was saying. Herod was just a political figure saying, this is who I've heard that he is. And by the way, the Jesus that Herod had heard about, he was physically afraid of, right? Not the Jesus of the Bible. In our culture, us understanding who Jesus is, this one, by the way, the book, one of the books that I recommend uh, on this is The Jesus I Never Knew by a guy named Philip Yancey. I read it decades ago, 25 years ago. Ch- literally changed my entire understanding of who Christ was because I'd been following this very emasculated, boring, tame Jesus and I was bored out of my mind. That wasn't the Jesus of the scriptures either, but that's a great book if you want a good reading for this year. But the question then for you, because for, what did Peter say? said, you are the Christ, the son of God. That's what he said. That's who, what do others say? They say you're this, you're, but that's what I say. You're Christ, you're the son of God. And in this book, like one verse in, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And it goes on to quote this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. And you guys have probably believed it, have probably prayed it, have probably thought it, but I want to ask you today to think through the implications of what it means to believe that he is Jesus. By the way, did you know that Christ is not his last name? Like if you were looking up in the phone book, it wouldn't be under the C's, right? Jesus was his name. Christ was who he was, he was what he was called to be, and the son of God. And he doesn't leave any room, by the way, for being just a great teacher with this. There is no, this, that was the teaching that he gave on this. So Jesus, what does the word Jesus mean? That's his name. I bought tacos at a taco truck last week from a guy named Jesus, and they were awesome. <laughs> 
Jesus is just a name. It really is. I, we Americans got all like weirded out by we can't name anybody Jesus, but man, props to my Latino friends. <laughs> they were like, no, we're, we're owning that one. <laughs> um, Jesus. But Jesus actually has a meaning. It means savior. Savior. He would, Matthew 1, 21, not that he would just save us. Save us from what? The, the angel said he would save you, his people, you from their sins. <sighs> the world that Russell Brand is in right now, and again, I have nothing but compassion for him, and I have compassion for you if you're in a world where it is about working hard enough to get your sins, to get good enough to be forgiven, to earn your right, to finally fill that hole in your heart, working so hard with that. That's just religion, and he said, I'm going to save you from your sins. You won't ever save yourself from them. Something that I learned this week, I always love learning new things. It's the beauty of the Bible, by the way. There's, it's just an endless, vast resource. When John was baptizing people, the idea of a ritual cleansing was not a new idea. Like, did anybody listen to NPR? Fellow liberals? All right, all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> This week they were teaching about, uh, they're talking about a, a, a temple in India where they were washing, they were letting women in for the first time. This is a big deal. But they had to wash them because they were impure. The ritual washing has been around for centuries, for millennia. The Jews, when they would go into the temple, they would wash their hands in the laver. If you were a Gentile, you were screwed. So you had to like pour buckets of water over yourself to get cleansed. You were so impure. So the idea of a ritual cleansing from sins wasn't new. What was different about what John the Baptist was doing was he was doing the baptizing. The ritual cleansing, I'm washing my own hands. The Gentile cleansing, I'm buckets of water over myself. John the Baptist was starting with an idea that no, you would never cleanse yourself. You're going to need someone else to wash your sins away. He was the one that washed Jesus would then say, I'm going to baptize you. John says, I'm going to baptize you in water. Jesus is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. The ritual washing of cleansing was just pointing to a story of what Jesus had planned, that he was going to be the one that would wash your sins. You were never going to save yourself. There are techniques. There are all kinds of things you can find. And you know me, I don't have any problem with counseling or with therapy or with psychologists. Your brain is an organ just like your appendix is like you just, it's an organ, but you're going to learn techniques. You're not going to get there. You're not going to get your sins forgiven by just trying to overcome it. Jesus, Yeshua is going to save you from your sins. And he wasn't just Jesus, Yeshua. He was the Christ. You are, the Greek is Christos. The Hebrew is uh, Phyllis, you're going to have to help me on this one if I mess it up. Just tell me. I've, I have two services to get this right. This is my third time's a charm moment. Mashiach. Mashiach in the Hebrew? Mashiach. See, I thought that's what I said. When I said it, that's what I'm hearing, but that's not. <sighs> it, it was the one they were waiting for. So not just a guy that's coming that's going to save them from their sins. It's the guy that's coming that they have been looking for. The one that they have waited for, for centuries that have been prophesied about hundreds of times. He was the one 
He was so, there was only one. They knew there was only one. And when John the Baptist, you read that in Matthew, when he was about to be executed, this wasn't how he thought it was gonna go. Like they had, there's two sets of prophecies in the Old Testament. And by the way, I believe both of them will be fulfilled. One is the suffering servant. One is Jesus who is going to be crucified. One of them is the, I'm gonna open up a can of whoop God and clean this place up. Those are both in there and they were looking for that one and he came in that suffering servant mode, the Messiah. I believe that he will come back, by the way. If he fulfilled by some estimates 400, but even just you know, you know, 350 at the very minimum prophecies that he fulfilled, do you think he's gonna skip that one? But that's the one. I, I'm, we've been looking for you. And so John the Baptist, who was discouraged, that wasn't what he thought it was gonna be, John the Baptist, and he says, hey, uh, he sent two of his guys, two of his, his ride or die bros and said, ask him, is he the one? Did I, did I waste my whole life for this? And they, it says, I think it's Matthew 11, they went to him, these two disciples, and they said, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus said, tell him what you saw, that the lame were healed, that the blind see, that tell him what you saw, he is the one. And those prophecies that were fulfilled in him for being the one, there's a prophecy that he is fulfilling in your own life. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that eternity is written on your hearts. Uh, C.S. Lewis, as he always does. By the way, when I don't put C.S. Lewis up as a book that you should read when I'm doing like studies, just know that's a given on any sermon series. His book, Mere Christianity. Because So Russell Brand would say, and we would agree, that in the darkness, in the sinful things, we're looking for God, but also in the successful things, we're looking for God with our house, with our financial, with our job, with our career path. And what does C.S. Lewis say here? That most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that can't be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love. Some of us, it's been a while, but you remember that longing when you were young and in love or first think of some foreign country, first take up some subject that excites us. Our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am now speaking of what would, I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry might have been a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. And then he writes these very famous words. If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Eternity was written on your hearts. If you've ever traveled to a beautiful, I mean, I've been to Alaska before. 
We've, you know, David and I have stood in some of the most beautiful places on the planet and you take a picture of it and it's like, well, that didn't do it any justice. But in that moment of that beauty of the, there's a sadness with it because I know it won't last and I have to. Do you know, by the way, the average person in America spends 15 minutes at the Grand Canyon when you go? True story. But you're there. Now what do I do with it? I can't take it in me. I can't, it's, there's a sadness with it. That's what C.S. Lewis is talking about. That is the prophecy that Messiah was fulfilling in you and I, and there is no other one. That your fulfillment that you seek inside of you, the best or the worst, either one, I'm looking behind that door. And for us, maybe I'm not going to Jesus directly and saying, is there another, but to my career, I'm succeeding. And some of you guys have been very successful. Some of you women have dominated in your fields. And at some point you're like, but it wasn't quite as fulfilling. And is this it or should I look for another? In, in marriage, man, I remember when I was young, right? How many young married and, you know, you know Brian and Caitlin, you're young and you're married and, and you get there and it's awesome and, and it's work and, it's, it just wasn't, it's this great marriage, but it wasn't quite enough. Should I look for another? Not another wife, by the way. I just want to be super clear. <laughs> but I'm looking for it in marriage, and is it not there, or should I look for another? The answer is yes. All those things are glimpses in their tastes, in there, but they're not Messiah. They're not what was written on your heart. He is Jesus who's come to save you for your sins. He is Messiah. He is the one that you have been looking for, the longing that you have been desiring, and he is the son of God. Now, by the way, the word sons of God appear lots of times in the Old Testament. If you want to spend a great afternoon of a giant rabbit hole, and I would suspect Jamie Brandenburg already has, but the the word sons of God in the Old Testament, Elohim, uh, sometimes it's translated the sons of God. There, this is, what's that? Yeah, but Jimmy, take over, actually. Kids would love it. Um, <laughs> angels have sometimes referred to the sons of God, son of God, but only once in this instance. And what made them so angry was that the prophecy that they were quoting was from Isaiah 40, verse three. Four, five, six, and eight verses. And in that, every time the word Lord, this is the one, he's crying in the wilderness, make path for the Lord. I'm, he's making this path for the Lord that's coming. And that word Lord, every time it's used, is the word Yehovah. You get that one? Ah, sorry. <laughs> Phil, Phil is like lived in Israel. So I'm always feeling a little uh, vulnerable when I'm trying to say Hebrew words. Jehovah, it was God. It wasn't just the son of God, sons of God. It was God made flesh in our midst. That's a big deal. And I know what time it is. So I'm gonna tell you three things that I think make this a big deal. And if you want to, uh, there's my Bible. If you want to find further study on this, that book that I showed you by Tim Keller, that's where this came from. These three things that believing that Jesus is the son of God, understanding it, taking inside of you, the way that it changes you. The first thing is that it changes the drive shaft of your heart. And here's what I mean. We're all driven by something. Most of us, it's fear. Fear of not being enough. Fear of being found out. Fear of getting to the end of this whole thing and it wasn't what I thought it was gonna be. Fear. And all the religions of the world do nothing but exacerbate that fear. Because all the other religions are about me getting to God. God is out there. He's up there. And if I do in Islam, the four pillars, Buddhism, the eight paths, 
Judaism, the Ten Commandments, every single one of them are about me getting to God, including Russell Brand's version of Jesus. I hope he meets this Jesus because this Jesus, the Son of God, was God becoming a man so that knowing I'd never get to him, he came to me. He would say in just a couple of verses, the kingdom of God is near. It's Jesus. He was coming near us. It literally changes the drive shaft of your heart so that I'm no longer trying to get to him. And now I'm living out of this gratitude and this awesome joy of that he came for me. And you know what that does for me as well? Like if I'm crushing it as a Buddhist, you know what that means? And you're not, then there's nothing you could feel but judgment standing beside me. By the way, Buddha's last words, strive. Jesus's last words, it is finished. Give me Jesus. I can't stand in front of you as a Christian, as believing that he's the son of God that came near with any kind of judgment because he came near me. He came to save me just like he came to save you. He became one of us. It changes the drive shafts of my heart that I'm no longer motivated by that fear. It's an amazing tool if you're in suffering. If you have lost a child, and I won't ask you to raise your hands, but in this room, likely that someone has buried their, ch- their child. The only person who could understand what you went through is someone who has also lost a child. Jesus becoming a man means that I'm sitting down across the table from someone that understands what I've been through. It's not a lecture anymore. He gets it. He gets me. And as hard as it is, some of you that have been through worse, you you feel a little bit better knowing, hey, they went through way worse than I did and they survived. There's this thing that just motivates me to think that's awesome. I can get, I get that. The son of God, he is not just some ethereal out there. He became a man and he gets it. And the third thing that it does, and I love this because it really speaks of our church, but man, it gives you a vote, like a motivation for peace, for justice, like nothing else. Because Jesus got a body and lived in an earth. He is recreating your body at some point. When you die, you will resurrect with a body in a new heaven and a new earth, restoring it all. But a literal body, a literal earth, it gives you, it lets you know that the world is important. It lets you know that caring about the environment isn't a conservative or a liberal thing. It's a Jesus thing that caring about justice for the poor and for the oppressed isn't a political thing, it's a Jesus thing. Concern about the unborn isn't a political thing, it's a human rights issue, it's a Jesus issue. And so when we go and build an orphanage in Haiti, when we go to Place of Hope and rescue drunks and addicts, we're just saying, kingdom of God says you're important to me. Jesus became one of us in justice and peace. He didn't say, by the way, go into all the world and fight poverty. Um, The Genesis 3 world, that's not a victory we'll ever win. I'm sorry, Bono. But when he comes and restores the world, it will be taken care of. But until then, we're building an outpost for the kingdom of God and saying, not on our watch. Jesus was a man. He lived in a body. He lived in a physical earth. It motivates us for that kind of a justice. Now, the last thing the prophecy that he quoted was from Isaiah. 
Because this is all great if he's not just a great teacher, if he really is the son of God, if he really is Messiah, if he really is gonna save me from my sins, how does that even work and how does that play out? You see, the prophecy that he quotes from Isaiah talks about making straight the paths and it says making level the highway. Anytime in the book of Mark that that word highway is used after that verse, it's used on the, describing the road to the cross. Now making path that's straight, that's highway, the, the only way I know how to explain this, anybody live out like Murfreesboro or like where you gotta go on 840? And you see, you go through there, they just blew these giant walls out there where like giant rocks fall. And you're like, man, that guy shouldn't be parked there. That rock's gonna fall on him. But what that was, was we we're building a highway there, which took like 20 years, it seemed like, to build that. Was There was a giant mountain. So instead of trying to build it over the mountain, we blew a hole in the middle of it and went right through. We made a level path. There are places where there's a giant canyon or canyon, whatever river there. And instead of driving down into it, we built a bridge over it. Now, if you've traveled before, uh, Jen just went with me to Haiti. When we went to Jacques Mel from Port-au-Prince, they did not make straight that path. They did not make level that path. <laughs> Rebecca, I mean, it's like, but listen, that's what happens when you build a road in a developing nation. What he was saying in that prophecy was a mind-blowing idea, which is I'm gonna blow a hole in that mountain. And it says that, I'm gonna break these mountains down. I'm gonna raise these valleys up and I'm gonna make straight this path. And the path that he was talking about was a path to the cross. And for those of you that have been to Israel, you know the path to the cross, the Via Dolorosa. Not just something that Sandy Patty made famous. It's a winding road, winding, winding. It goes up and down and up and then up to this giant hill. He went on that path that was up and down and winding to make level your path directly to the cross. So that when I say that the path before the cross, the ground in front of the cross is level, I'm not just making that up. That's exactly what it is. And it's exactly why I pray that whether it's Russell Brand or you, that you meet the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Mashiach, the Christos, the Savior, Yeshua, that one, that he has come to save you from sin, to build a level playing field. That's the Jesus I hope you meet. Stand to your feet and I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, If anybody in here has not met you before, I pray that today that they will meet you. This one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that is, you have saved me from my sins. I'm not saving myself. You are what I have been searching for. I will not find it anywhere else. You are the Son of God. Jehovah. I pray that that's the God that we encounter today. And that out of the abundance of joy and gratitude, I stand on a level playing field in front of the cross. I can't judge anybody for getting it right or wrong. I'm just standing here on the same playing field, being with the same forgiveness and the same grace that you offer all of us freely. And in the words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. Thank you for that. I pray that these words become alive in us and that as we meditate and chew on it, that they actually don't just become an academic idea, but a real life belief. It's in your name, Jesus, Yeshua, your name that I pray. Amen. Gang, happy new year. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.